Well, good morning. I hope that all of you are rather well rested, unless you have a young child who does not care that it's daylight savings, if they're beneath the age of two or three. Um, but this week was a special week for me because my dissertation supervisor, Herman Zelderhaus, was in town from the Netherlands. I've shared with many of you before uh, who Herman is and what Herman is like, but Herman is kind of a powerhouse in the historical theology realm. He's the president of the European Academy of Religion. He's the head of Refo 500. So in the, the very niche world, in the cottage industry of Calvin studies, everyone knows Herman. Uh, yeah, in that tiny little world. Uh, but the reason why people know Herman is just because he's an amazing guy. Uh, he is deeply pastoral. He preaches at churches almost every Sunday. In his denominational structure, he's functionally a bishop. Uh, so no one really knows how Herman gets everything done that he gets done, uh, but somehow or another he does. And so normally whenever I'm with Herman, it follows a pretty similar pathway in trajectory. We start with catching up on life. Uh, he doesn't cut to the chase. He goes you know, straight to, how's your life? How are your children? How's your wife? How's the church? Then we talk about Liverpool Football Club for a while, because I think the only reason he accepted me as a student is because I'm a Liverpool fan, and he is a diehard Liverpool fan as well. I talked to his wife about it, and she just rolled her eyes like, oh yeah, that's Herman. Uh, so we talk about life. We engage in that way. And then what he does is he opens up the chapter I've just submitted and his eyebrow furrows, and he's a rather imposing figure. Dutch people are rather large, if you didn't know that. They're the tallest people on the planet, um, literally. And uh, his eyebrow furrows, and then he just starts going at it, and he critiques everything. He critiques the structure. He tr critiques the ideas. If there's even a hint of pastoral grandiosity in there of like maybe saying something that I can't prove, like an unparalleled study by so-and-so, he says, oh, really, have you read all the studies done in Dutch? No take the word unparalleled out. Like he just, very Dutch, very Dutch. Uh, even correcting my grammar. And there's very few things more humiliating than a non-English speaker correcting your grammar. But I'll just tell you, the Dutch are way better at English than we are. So let that one sink in for a second. And so he just gets after you. And then at the end, he hits pause and he puts his pastor hat back on, his bishop hat back on. And he says, Tim, you're doing great, bud. You're gonna finish, you're about halfway there. This is a real contribution to the field, don't give up. And then those last very heartfelt words of kindness and gratitude and pastoral care always overshadow the hard word. Uh, Herman is not merely an incredible scholar, he's an incredible mentor. And so when you look, you see his uh, students everywhere in the field because he just knows how to mentor people and pastor them in the difficult task of, of scholarship. And we recognize in life that we all need a mentor in our life. Someone who has gone through a difficult task that we are facing and pastorally guides us, encourages us, but also tells us the things we don't wanna hear. Gives us the hard word that, hey, this actually isn't meeting my expectations right now. This isn't going to cut it in front of the board. So you need to actually do better but then also to end with a word of pastoral care and kindness and encouragement. We all need that word of conviction and that word of encouragement. And so God has structured his world to be full of mothers and fathers who guide God's people through this difficult task of life. 
In today's passage, we have an interesting uh, uh, firsthand experience of a mentor with his mentee, Paul giving Timothy instruction on the ministry of the word. Now, we have to remember that he's specifically addressing the task of the presbyter, the task of preaching God's word. And so we get an opportunity of seeing behind the scenes of this, you know, keep it up young man talk between a bishop and his mentee, somebody that he is serving under him. And so I want to look at, at two things today. First, I want to look at the importance of having Paul's in our life the importance of having mentors that actually know us, care about us, and can speak a hard word to us in the areas of our life where we need growth. All of us need a mentor in life, a pastor, an elder, a father in the faith. And then second, I want to look at particularly this, um, this word he gives him that has a clear exhortation to do the task he's been given, preach the word, a clear context that is difficult, preach the word amongst a generation that won't listen. That's important to remember for the context. He says, preach the word and it's going to be terrible. Preach the word and people are going to abandon you and go find people that will tell them what they want to hear. And he doesn't give him a pass. And we need to hear that. Maybe you do have a non-compliant child and they've been that way since they were born. You still need to hear the word. Keep going as a parent. (laughs) Maybe you have been placed in a work environment where you say, I am unappreciated. And maybe it is time to go or maybe it is time for your character to grow and to be told to keep going. Because ultimately where Paul concludes is focusing not as much on the task, but on the character with which the Holy Spirit, the character the Holy Spirit is developing in the person of Timothy. And we need people who can speak that truth into our lives. And so he calls them to be sober-minded and to endure hardship. So if you would turn with me to 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5, where we're going to look at this important relationship between fathers, sons, mothers, daughters, mentors, mentees. I charge you in the presence of God. Look at that first. I charge you. That's what bishops do. Every time a bishop ordains a priest or a deacon, they charge them. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And then look at this. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you... Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. First, let's recognize the privileged status of Timothy as related to Paul. He actually has someone in his life who in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says, you are like a son to me. This isn't just a passing relationship. This is a deep and intimate relationship. Paul's able to give this hard word of charge based upon uh, what we can assume is years of friendship and pastoral care. We're going to see at the end of this book, of all the people in the world that Paul wants with him on his deathbed, he says, I want my son with me. 
So would you come and be with me as I'm dying? So he has this relationship and he has this authority to say, hey, you've been given a task. You've been given a task of preaching God's word. So continue to do it. Continue to do it with authority in season and out of season, uh, with, with reproving, rebuking, exhorting, in patience, going about this task with excellence and conviction. And he does so in this relationship of pastoral care and support. Now, as I've shared before, and we just talked about Paul, he often talks about himself as a father to a son. Now, in 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 21, we actually see a, a more, um, he, he pa- unpacks this further. So if you would turn with me there, 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but, and if you've ever read 1 Corinthians 8, they should have been pretty ashamed, but uh, to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. So he's distinguishing a guide from a father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me, that that is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And this is probably uh, the greatest smack talk, pastoral smack talk I've ever seen. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So here Paul is distinguishing guides which you can presumably, you know, take or leave, guides that you can ignore or listen to, and fathers who come in care and in power. You know, it's interesting. Uh, We live in a time where the importance of fatherhood is becoming more and more obvious and backed by research. Rob Henderson uh, has written an interesting book on this. And then I would also recommend all, everything I'm about to tell you, I'd really recommend every person subscribe to the Institute of Family Studies out of the University of Virginia. They do research on basically proving God's plan for the family. And it's a secular research, but as Christians, we can read it this way. God's plan for the family was actually right. And things tend to fall apart when we diverge from it. Um, but basically, Rob Henderson and so much research has been shown the centrality of fatherhood. In fact, he's been, has shown that um, economic mobility, uh, be, you know, receiving a college education, a, a paying job, having children, being a productive member of society, all the things that we would say, like, these are qualitative ways that we can talk about maturity. That is more intimately connected to relational wealth than it is the financial wealth, meaning the two-parent homes with the presence of, a father, presence of a father is one of the key indicators of maturity in a child's life. In fact, um, when children, we often think children will imitate the work ethic of a parent. And we all know the hardest working people in the world are single mothers, right? 
They're doing all the work of home and the work of the ec economy at the same time. But that ethic is actually not translated particularly to boys in single mother homes. They actually require the presence of fathers. This is actually, everything I'm saying doesn't diminish the importance of mothers, by the way. I really want to communicate that. But there's just interesting data that's coming out that talks about the unique roles of fathers, particularly in young boys' lives, but also in young women's lives, in the maturation process. And it's interesting, when they actually look at fathers and their relationships with children, it's not merely enough to just have you know, a warm body there that's just kind of present. It's a coming together of what Paul just talked about, interestingly enough. Fathers are most effective and lead to mature children that are emotionally stable and able to engage difficulty in the world if they are emotionally present, meaning they care and are nurturing, and are the boundary and expectation setters of the home. So what you see is not only nurture and care, but boundary and expectation. And there's so much research. Again, don't take my word for it. You know, subscribe to their newsletter. It's totally free. Supporting this again and again. And we see this is the relationship Paul has with Timothy. He nurtures him. He cares for him. He, he treats him as a son that he loves so dearly. He says, I want you with me when I'm going to die. And... He says, life's going to get really difficult. People don't want to listen to what you're going to say. I'm right there with you. I'm in prison for it. And do not quit. And all of us need fathers and mothers in our lives that will communicate that to us, that will communicate to us the richness of the gospel, that we are dearly, uh, and <laughs> dearly loved by God, that our identity is secure, uh, that we are seen and known, and to continue in a life of obedience and faithfulness to Jesus when things get difficult. I've noticed a startling trend, and I'm hoping that we can correct this. And you know, the church is always in a pendulum of correction. Is men's ministry went completely in the direction of man up, right? Do what you're told and lost nurture and many men struggled as a result. And women's ministry went, you're seen and beloved, and often very much lacks. And it's time to die to yourself and follow Jesus. And men and women in the church need to be told both by men and women in our lives that have authority in our lives to speak boldly to us, especially where we don't want them to speak. Those parts of our lives where we have been very careful to disguise and cover over. We need people who know us well enough that they will risk loving us and speaking hard words to us. And all of us need that in our lives, men and women need this. Now, we see that Paul is bold to speak this to Timothy because of the task at hand is very difficult. He is told, you are going to preach the word and you are to do it with boldness. 
uh, you are uh, to do it as one who, 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 who exhorts, who rebukes, who reproves. Reproves just means reminds. Who has patience, who teaches, meaning using logic. You are called to go about the task of proclaiming the gospel. And then he reminds him, you are in a difficult season. You are in a rocky, you are in rocky soil. Here's what he says. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He calls him to this task. In In this relationship of love, and then he tells him, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be pretty terrible. There are a few things more insulting to a pastor than when someone, or, and heartbreaking, than when someone leaves their flock for heretical teaching. The things that have broken my heart the most are the people in our church who have deconstructed. Because I've thought, God, you put me in their life to stop this, and I wasn't able to. Now, that's a good reminder to me that I'm not Christ Jesus. I'm no man's and or no woman's savior. But I won't lie, I've shared this with you so many times. So much of my ministry has been trying to help you all not go down that path of deconstruction. And when I see that, my heart just aches. And Paul is looking at Timothy and he's saying, the task you've been given is not gonna be easy. How many of you have had a colicky baby? And you say, God, why'd you give me a colicky baby? You didn't have to give me a colicky baby. You know, I, we've had both. <laughs> our, our second born child was so easy. We'd have eight children by now if they were all like him. Um, why'd you give us a colicky baby? Many of you have gone through seasons of marriage where you've said, Lord, something is going on in the heart of my spouse. I can't fix it. They might not even know they need it. Why did you call me to this? Uh, You might be facing a layoff. You say, God, why? My family's already unstable enough. Why have you called me to this? And what Paul does here is he doesn't paint over it. He doesn't say, hey, you know, suffering's gonna stink, but you know, just do it. Um, Rather, he calls him to the formation of godly character. He calls him to be sober-minded and to endure suffering. He points him to character. Character that can only be formed in the difficult seasons of life. Jesse Blaine, our church planter um, in, in Denver, he and I were in Georgia a couple years ago. If you guys, may, some of you know this, uh, a large Baptist church in Georgia uh, is our, our largest financial backer for all of our church plants. Um, outside of our diocese. 
And so they just love our churches. They serve our churches. And so every two years, the clergy get together with their wives and, and, and descend upon Gainesville, Georgia. And there's this one guy who's just a gem, and he's a farmer. And I can't remember his name, but even his name is just so perfect. And there's something about Southern culture, if you've never witnessed this, that is, that is incredibly good at storytelling and proverbs. Have you ever noticed that? It's a very proverbial culture, wonderful storytelling culture, right? That's why some of our greatest authors, you know, come from the South. Um, so anyway, he's talking to Jesse, this farmer is, and he, he, you know, Jesse was talking about the difficulties of planting a church. And he reminded him of this time that his, the farm that he inherited from his father, they had a great crop. It was a phenomenal crop. And then right before harvest, it got nailed by, um, by a hailstorm. And his, his, this young boy, as he's sitting with his dad, is looking at their livelihood that is wrecked. And he's absolutely crestfallen. And his dad looks at him and he says, son, you thought God sent us here to grow soybeans, but God sent us here to grow men and women. And this is often how he does it. Paul doesn't paint over the difficulty Timothy's going to face. But in the midst of the difficulty, he calls him to this character formation that only happens amidst suffering. And so first he calls them to be sober-minded. Now, this word sober-minded literally does mean in the Greek, sober in relation to alcohol. Okay? So this isn't just like an English translation, you know, kind of jumping to say, oh, this is how people understand. No, it literally means sober as in not being drunk on alcohol. And so what does it mean to be sober-minded? It might be important to ask first, what does it mean to be intoxicated in the mind? Why do we run to intoxication? Well, often, and I would say almost always if we dig deep enough, we run to intoxication as a way of regaining control when life feels out of control. So we engage a substance of some kind, whether that's alcohol or marijuana or, or pornography or uh, scrolling social media incessantly or incessant worry. We engage in some act that we think we can regain control of our life through when life feels out of control. And then what ends up happening? Life does not go back to control. The thing that we ran to to feel like we could you know, gain, regain control, what it does is end up controlling us. And our mind becomes intoxicated, confused, and distracted. And the way that we sought control ends up spiraling out of control. And so what does Paul call us to do? What is the teaching of Holy Scripture when we face suffering? Is it to go to the things of this world to find control which ultimately leads to intoxication. Rather, in Philippians 4, 7, what we see is this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is a sober mind? 
A sober mind is a mind that is governed by the peace of God. A sober mind is the mind that runs to the presence of Christ Jesus when the difficulties of life arise. A sober mind is one that doesn't seek to control your world by your grasping, but gives your life to Jesus recognizing who you are because you know whose you are. This is why we talk about all the time, this is where the gospel grounds who we are and directs what we do. We can't be directed unless we are first grounded in the wholeness of our status as those who are beloved by Christ Jesus. The sober mind is the whole mind that has found peace that surpasses all understanding in the presence of Christ Jesus. You can understand that Timothy would seek to grasp at control when he's told you are given a hard task and everybody's gonna reject you. We do this in our lives. We have a task set before us and we feel utterly incapable of addressing it. So we run to self-medications and those self-medications create intoxication in our life, figuratively or literally. And we don't regain control, we spiral out of control. The only place, brothers and sisters, where we are to run and find a sober mind, a whole mind, a complete mind in the midst of the sufferings we face and the task God has given us is in the presence of our Lord. And then finally, he calls him to endure hardship. I, I really, my favorite book on leadership is called Rare Leadership by Marcus Warner because all it focuses on is the character of the leader. And the R, it's an acronym. Uh, no, no, the E, sorry, the last one. Endure begins with an E. The E at the end, it's, uh, you know, remain relational, act like yourself, return to joy, and then endure hardship well. We all recognize that godly character is forged when we endure hardship, but we don't just endure it, we endure it well. When you think about asking someone to be your mentor, whether that's in work or in the church, it's interesting. We always wanna go to someone that we have seen suffer. Have you ever noticed that? Nobody wants to be told what to do by someone who has only succeeded. Uh, nobody, we all want to walk alongside someone that knows what it's like to fail. And brothers and sisters, we are called to have the Holy Spirit form our character in the midst of the sufferings and failures of life. But, we can endure hardship differently than the rest of the world because we know that hardship doesn't have the final word. John 16, says this, I have said these things to you that, you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will face tribulation. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. But take heart, I have overcome the world. How can Christians endure hardship? It's the recognition that hardship doesn't have the final word, that failure does not define you, that suffering is not the final existence of the human 
or the, the final reality of the human experience, that Christ Jesus has overcome the world. The Christian can suffer differently because we have eyes of resurrection and eyes of hope. But brothers and sisters, often we don't form eyes of hope until we have faced suffering in this life. You know, I've never knew what the desire for the new heavens and the new earth was like until I lost people I love dearly. I didn't know what that longing was like until I had faced it. I wish with all of my might that the Lord would use different methods to form us. I wish that you could avoid suffering. I wish that I could avoid suffering. But the thing that we see consistently throughout all of scriptures is that we won't avoid suffering. And the Lord calls us to endure it, but to endure it well, to grow amidst it, to not ignore it, to not be Pollyannish about it, to not say, well, just put a stiff upper lip and move on. That actually doesn't form godly character. That it doesn't form you into someone who can later mentor someone else because that's not the word you needed then. And so if that's the word you have then, that's gonna be the word you hand on. And that's not the word that nobody needs. Rather, the Lord will carry you through difficult seasons just as he carried Timothy, just as he carried Paul, just as he carried our Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of showing you the hope of the resurrection that his, yes, his amen, his resurrection hope has the final word. And so my prayer to you, my prayer for you is that you wouldn't run to the things of this world that intoxicate you, to seek control, but rather you would recognize the suffering of this life and seek the only place where you can be restored, redeemed, made whole, the presence of Christ Jesus. And my prayer for you also is that each of you would have people in your lives that have authority in your life that can speak to you. Yes, words of comfort and peace, but also words of conviction that you might grow into a person that can later pass that on to the next generation. Adult, or are, uh, are people that are slightly older in the room. I know you don't like for me to call you boomers or builders or anything like that. You all, we desperately need you, and we desperately need all of you to be forming godly character yourself so that you have something to pass on. And my prayer is that the church would be this one last place in the world where generations come alongside each other and help each other grow to become more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for hard words in your holy scripture. And we thank you for comforting words in your scripture. Lord, for those here that needed comfort today, Lord, would they hear how beloved they are? Would they hear that you have not turned your back on them amidst suffering? that you call them to endure suffering because your resurrection hope has the final word. For those that um, have sought intoxication in this life to seize control of their suffering, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you give them freedom? Would you show them that the only place where they can be truly free is in your presence, in your peace, in your freedom, Holy Spirit? Lord, for those here that need a mentor, give them boldness to ask. For those here that need to be mentors, give them boldness to step up. All this we ask by your Holy Spirit and your Son, 
and you the Father. Amen.